The fight over the Illinois assault weapons ban heats up, plus Alex Bosco on the ATF's attempt to ban the pistol braces he invented, and a look at my time at SHOT Show. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our free newsletter today if you want to get the latest in what's going on with guns in America. You can also buy a membership if you want to support our reporting and get access to hundreds of exclusive pieces that you won't find anywhere else. You will also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show, if you'd like, in a member segment, which one of my favorite segments. But this week, we are talking about the big news out of the ATF, which deals with the pistol brace ban. And we actually have Alex Bosco of SP Tactical, who invented these devices on the show with us today. Uh, welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. This is going to be an interesting subject to talk about. Certainly. Can you just tell people a little bit more about yourself before we get going? Sure, sure, sure. So, um Obviously, my name is Alex Bosco. I uh, I live in Florida. Um, the company started in Florida. I'm a former Marine. I was also in the Army for a few years as well. Um, and uh, like many other former Marines uh, and Army service members, after I got out, I uh, was looking for a job. And SB Tactical was kind of the genesis of that. And um, since you, you came up with these devices, you own the largest company that makes them, right? Um, can you give us a little insight into how many there are? There's sort of a very wide range of estimates out there. The ATF initially said three to 7 million. Uh, now they're in this, the final rule, they're sort of saying it's close. It's probably closer to three. You have the congressional research, uh, service saying there's 10 to 40 million. That's obviously a massive difference. Uh, in your opinion, as somebody who's produce, uh, I believe, millions of these devices, like what, how many are really out there? Yeah, I mean, so I can only speak about what I do. There are several other um, brace manufacturers that are out there. And, um, you know, obviously, some of them have um, worked through us. Uh, some of them have come up with their own ideas. Um, as you mentioned, Congressional Research Services did their study. I think it's important for people to understand what CRS is because we throw that name out there and most people I think in our industry don't understand. So CRS really quick uh, is a group of folks that works for Congress to help them understand better uh, what they need to know prior to, to either rulemaking or lawmaking. And um, you know, it's, it's our tax dollars at work. Um, the study that they came up with, which was a very, fairly profound study because they went to a lot of the different manufacturers to find out and they went through, um, I believe they went through some of the numbers that NSSF had as well, looking at caliber and type of pistols that were sold between 2012, which is when I came up with the product, and when the CRS study came out, which I think was about two years ago, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Essentially, uh, their number obviously was 10 to 40 million. Now, a lot of people ask me directly, how many have you sold? And that's one of those things that as a company owner, um, we don't divulge those numbers. Uh, what I can tell you that the number 10 million is certainly a correct number. I don't know how many it braces other people have sold, um, but I'm guessing more or less, but the number is north of 10 million. Is it 40 million? Possibly. 
it, it could possibly get up to that. But the reason they got to that number, remember, is by going through a type of firearm caliber. And uh, by that, I think they look at like pistol and then they look at like rifle caliber. So five, five, six. But then it's tough to see, like even there's a lot of nine, 45, 10 pistol caliber carbines that are around. So the number could be uh, far north of 10 million. Okay. And so you're, from your point of view, uh, with your experience in the industry, you you think the number's at least 10 million. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of ATF, but they're trying to make a point by all of this. All right. And obviously when somebody tries to make a point, if they're intellectually honest, they look at certain things. I don't think that ATF is intellectually honest about this. I think they have an agenda. And therefore, I think what they're trying to do is to point at the smallest number so that they could make their point that it's not going to have the effect that all of us are talking about. So, but again, let's use their numbers. What are they saying? Seven million now? Three million? Five million? I mean, I've seen a few of them get tossed around like as if it was really nothing. That's still a lot of braces out there, even if you use their numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the small arms survey estimates there are a million total firearms in the arsenal of the entire law enforcement community of the United States. So even by the ATF's estimation, that would still just to give some context, that would be a lot of firearms. It's the amount of um, people it affects. I mean, just think about all of mm -hmm. those people that have a braced firearm now are going to be subject to this 293 page monstrosity. Yeah. And speaking of that 293 page document, what uh, I, I want to know what your takeaway is uh, from everything that's in there. Do, are there any pistol braced guns after this that remain regular firearms and not SBRs? So that is the question, Steve. I mean, it, essentially, we remember what they came out with and what they came out with uh, when they first presented this rule um, was the point system. And they gave you, you know, if you, if you had a certain amount of points, you were okay. If you didn't have a certain amount of points, you were not okay. But the most interesting part of that first, I guess that first ruling that they came out with, not this last one, this 293 pages, the draft, the draft was that there, there was at least one dispositive ruling, which means it was uh, a way that you can get to a brace that was approved. And what they used was RSB mini. Um, and in this new ruling, there is nothing that is dispositive. In other words, there is nothing in there that would um, allow you to get to a configuration that was not a short barreled rifle. Um, and although they go through a little bit of, of mental gymnastics to say, well, you know, if the brace is uh, objectively designed to be a uh, a, a brace, then you have nothing to worry about. But if it meets this other criteria, then it's a short barreled rifle. The problem is it always meets the other criteria. Therefore, it is never a brace. Um, and one of the things that I just, I mean, I remember reading it. I, so I've been reading it, not the whole thing, because it's 293 pages, but I've been going over it since Friday. I mean, one of the things that I find absolutely just terrible is the fact that they're looking at so the, I invented the product. It's a brace, right? So you would think that the most important thing that the ATF would be looking at is how does it function as a brace? That, that is the essence of what it is. Um, it's what it was designed for. Um, it's what 
what thousands of people use it for, maybe not millions, but thousands of people use it that way. The first thing that they look at is how can it be used as a stock? And the implication of that is what should scare everybody because, frankly, everything can be used as a stock if you really want to try and do it that way. An AR-15 buffer tube itself can be used as a stock, even if they tell you, well, if it's functional for the firearm um, and, uh, you know, the surface area is less than an objective number that we are not telling you what it is, then we're not going to look at it as a stock. But the thing is, it's like, We'll know it when that that porn test that everybody talks about. We'll know it when we see it. You can't do that. Not when it comes to a criminal offense. I mean, here we're talking about and like actually going to jail for something that up until the other day was legal. So, um, all right, ten years in prison. In fact, ten years. Yeah, and there's I think there's a big federal prison. Yeah, federal prison. Lose your voting rights. Lose your gun rights. All of that. Yeah, and I guess that uh, gets to the core of what we're what we're really talking about with these devices and this ATF rule. Um, you know, obviously, uh, so this all stems from the National Firearms Act of 1934, right, which regulates um, a bunch of things, machine guns, suppressor silencers, um, but also short barrel rifles. Uh, but according to the law, uh, a rifle the definition they give is something that is designed and intended to be shouldered and has a, a rifle barrel. Uh, and you can't, in order, you know, the, the raw requires you to register and pay a tax stamp on any rifle that has a barrel shorter than 16 inches. It, it wasn't originally 16 inches, it got changed over time, um, actually, because the, the government itself, after uh, World War II, had sold a bunch of SBRs to the public without realizing they were doing it. Um, and so they had to change the law uh, after that point. But uh, regardless, that's that's the crux of this controversy is like the definition of rifle doesn't have anything to do with the caliber that it's firing or or measures like that. It's, it's, it's this uh, sort of nebulous concept of whether it was designed and intended to be shouldered. And so if you have uh, an AR-15, for instance, with a barrel under 16 inches, but it's it's meant to be fired without being shouldered by using uh, you know a brace that straps to your forearm. Then the idea that the ATF had initially accepted uh, for about a decade to this point was that it's not a rifle; it's not designed and intended to be shouldered. Although obviously they went, they were kind of all over the place on what oh, yeah. constitutes a brace and what doesn't. But um, you know that that's just to give anyone who's listening and doesn't have a firm grasp of what the core of this controversy is about, uh, that's what we're talking about. And the problem is, if it is an SBR, according to the ATF, and and you don't have it registered in the NFA uh, registry and you haven't paid the tax stamp, that's a that's a federal felony with punishment up to 10 years. Yeah, the bigger, the bigger issue, he, not a bigger issue, but a different way to look at it is that I think um, technology has superseded the law. So, you know, they made, they came up with this thing in 1934. Um, there's another act that came out in 1968. Um, you know, bullpup designs have been around for quite some time now. And I got, I, we have a, I have a, you know, a, a gun room that has just about every type of firearm you can, you can imagine. And what always kind of makes me laugh. And then I saw a few new guns at, uh, at SHOT Show that kind of just, um, they just, 
they go, it's not that they go around, they comply with the laws that were made in 1934 and 1968. So I, I'll have, right. you know, the a tactical tuna, which is a FN2000. And it's a, it's got a 16 inch barrel on it. And it's shorter than my 14 and a half inch, you know, SBR M4. It's shorter than a lot of SBRs. And then you have like some of these shotguns, like I think it was, I don't know if you saw it uh, at shot. I think it was Springfield came out with that really cool compact shotgun with the, it's got like a, a vertical foregrip. It's got an 18 inch barrel, but it's a bullpup design. So that gun is 27 inches in overall length. It's a beautiful gun. I think it's really cool. It's very tactical looking. But in this 293 pages, they're talking about um, the TAC-14 with a brace attached to it, which has an overall length, I believe, of somewhere upwards of 34 inches. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a big gun. Um, and they're saying that the problem with that firearm is that, number one, it wasn't designed to be fired with one hand, and therefore the brace is useless. And number two, that it makes these types of firearms more concealable. Think about that argument. Right. I mean, it's like you talk about mental gymnastics. It's like, where are we going here? And the point that they're trying to – this is – I mean, I guess this is the beachhead they want to die on. But they're trying to enforce laws that were done in 1934 that really don't apply with the technology of 2023. So right. I, I, I don't I mean, I get it. It's about power, you know, for them. They think that our industry is kind of like, you know, we're, we're thumbing it in their face. And, and mm -hmm. it's like we're really not because for every law that there is, there's an engineer that's going to find a way to comply with that law. And that's what bullpups right. are about. Um, that's what like all of the, the California compliance stuff is about. You know, people want to have their firearms and there's always going to be somebody who's going to come up with an idea, you know, whether it be for good reasons or for just for the purpose of thumbing it, their, their nose in it. That's what they're going to do. So, yeah. um, you know, we need to sit down with the industry leaders and come up with a better way of doing things. Because right now, you know, we, the relationship we have with ATF is not a good one. I don't know if anybody's looked at some of those comments on on ATF's uh, Instagram or anything like that, but it's crazy. Like, at what point do you say there's something broken here? Maybe we shouldn't be posting stuff. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, just to get, I guess, a little bit further into the point about this, the law and and how ATF tries to enforce it in this uh, way that's not fully logical. You know, that, that first of all, this law, the reason SBRs uh, and and short barrel shotguns are included in the NFA is because the law initially had a ban on handguns uh, because handguns are obviously far more concealable than any sort of short barrel rifle or shotgun. But it was thought that, you know, if you ban handguns, people can just cut down shotguns or rifles and make what are basically handguns uh, with them. And so they were trying to... Uh, account for that in this regulation, but then the handgun ban was removed before it passed into law. And as I alluded to earlier, initially it was 18 inches for the barrel length of rifles and shotguns. Because if you, as you, you mentioned there that today, 18 inches is still the length for shotguns, right? but for rifles, it's 16 inches. And that's because, and uh, Ian McCollum over at Forgotten Weapons has a great video explaining the detail of all this for people who want to, um, uh, you know, hear more on how this, how things came to be the way they are. But, but basically the 18 for rifles got shortened to 16 because of, uh, well, first 22s got exempted down to 16 inches because there were a lot of popular 22 rifles that were obviously not 
um, <laughs> prime uh, guns for criminals to use. And so uh, Congress had sort of agreed that this is not what they were trying to target. So they made an exception there. Then they started selling M1 carbines after World War II as surplus to actually the NRA <laughs> members. Uh, and they sold hundreds of thousands of those things before realizing that the barrel on that is shorter than 18 inches. Right. So their fix was to cut it down, the, cut the requirement down to 16 inches. And yeah, now you have, there's plenty of guns that have 16 inch barrels that have a shorter overall length than a lot of the braced guns that are, that are out there. Uh, you know, so there's kind of a mess. Uh, I mean, regulation to be fair, usually is kind of a mess and has these contradictions all over the place uh, in all sorts of industries. But uh, yeah, I want. I also want to get real quick at uh, something you mentioned there. It does seem that the ATF's position on this, it, it does feel, and I, I was at Stephen Dettelbach, the new director's speech to NS, NSSF at SHOT Show this week. And he reiterated this idea that uh, when you first submitted your brace uh, in 2012, the ATF, uh, you know, took that as this is a device to help disabled people be able to shoot uh, guns accurately and better. Um, and then it's turned in something into something from their point of view that uh, is sort of a, taking advantage of a loophole, I think is how they, a lot of it's not just the that, people at the top of the ATF yeah, feel about it. It's not. Only, so, yeah. What's, what's your thought on yeah, that? Yeah. It's not, that's not the, I mean, that's what he said at the meeting. I think what's important to read inside if you, and I've got this 293 page document in front of me, I'm not going to pull from it, but essentially what they're saying is that the brace allows for a certain type of proliferation of firearms that the ATF thinks should not be selling. And frankly, I mean, I think we all know what that means. That's gun control, right? That's the idea that the ATF is coming out and saying, he, he, I mean, he's using the excuse of saying what? Oh, well, they invented it for one thing, but other people are using it for another. Right. What does that mean for the purposes of public safety? What does that mean for the purposes of an agency whose sole purpose not only is to regulate what we do and, and how some of these laws are interpreted, but, you know, it's certainly not – their job is certainly not to decide what types of guns should be sold and shouldn't be sold. I think everybody agrees, and I think Dietlbach would agree as well, that that's up to Congress. And essentially, his, what, what his comments are, are, are doing, and they're just proving the point, that they are circumventing that process because essentially they have become the arbiter of deciding, okay, these types of guns shouldn't be sold. We have to do something about it, and we're going to do that, and, and we're going to go around Congress to do that. That's, that's ultimately the issue here. Um, we all know that it, – it's funny because I, I mean, I've been talking to Jim Jordan – uh, I spoke to, uh, you know, McCarthy. I spoke to Thomas Massey, who's, you know, that like the tip of the spear for this kind of stuff. But all of them are talking about what? Weaponized agencies, politicized agencies. What more grievous, um, you know, show of force can we see from an agency when somebody like this comes out and says, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to ban these things and not go through Congress. That is the definition of weaponized. I mean, that they're deciding for everybody circumventing Congress. So I, I get Dietlbach. I understand the position he comes from. I obviously don't agree with it. Um, but I think it's the process through which they're doing this that's the biggest issue. You have a problem with what we're doing. 
what is your job as the presidential appointee? Your job is to go back to Congress, go back to the president, say, hey, these guns are fundamentally more dangerous than every other firearm. You have some kind of document that proves that. And you go through Congress to try and, and, and in his case, he would want to ban all these types of firearms. The problem is, is in the document itself, where they come up, where they should come up with the, the thousands of different uh, instances where a braced firearm was used in a crime, they come up with what? Two. They come up with two separate instances where, and I think their words were, uh, the brace was used in the crime. So the brace, what about the sights? Were the sights used in the crime? Was the pistol grip used in the crime? What about the, uh, you know, the, the quad rail that was on the front of the farm? Was that used in the crime as well? So what does this set us up for? It really sets us up for, uh, and it's funny because if you go on to Feinstein's, Feinstein's website, she says that uh, 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 an arm brace turns an assault rifle into an assault pistol by making it more accurate, which I believe is the first time in history where somebody is trying to um, ban a firearm because the product makes it more accurate. Well, what does that lead to? What's the slippery slope there, Stephen? Like, wh- where do we go to? Is our, our sights, like the optics on a firearm next because it makes it too accurate to fire? I, right. I mean, the whole thing is such a slippery slope. It's really just such a disgusting example of um, agencies I don't want to say gone rogue because there's a lot of good folks at ATF that I know personally, um, but they just it's all about power. It's about trying to enforce something that was done in 1934, a long time ago, that doesn't apply to 2023. And instead of going to Congress to say, hey, we need to fix this. What do they do? They look at the 1934 stuff and say, hey, we have to do something about that 1934 stuff. It doesn't make any sense. It's not the way to do things. Right. Yeah, I think you are commonly hearing this uh, this argument about uh different accessories or features of the firearm making it too too easy to shoot uh as a reason why they need to be banned and so yeah now that you're you hear that a lot with uh in regards to ar-15 bands you know the, what so-called assault weapons bands mm-hmm. uh, these different features make the gun too easy to use or too easy to shoot uh as the, the the concept is to try and make it more difficult to to use the firearm as accurately which seems like a, a certainly an odd uh, goal, but yeah, um, but I will say so. You know, like you alluded to there, part of their argument is that braced pistols are more dangerous, uh, or I guess uh, SBRs. These types of firearms are more dangerous because they're more concealable. Do you do you find that to be well? Let's let's a legitimate it, concern. Let's net that point? out. Let's net that out. So. How long had AR-15 pistols been sold on the market? Do you, I know, but do, do, did you know how long more or less they've been on the market? I mean, I remember seeing them around before braces. Uh, so right, right, uh, probably a pretty long time. You want to do imagine. if you want to do a little funny, you know, research. Go back to Wayback Machine and just look up AR pistols on YouTube uh, prior to 2012 and watch how people were shooting them, um, and compare that to today. Nothing's changed. They're shooting them the same way as they were back before 2012. Now, AR pistols and those types of platforms have been around since, I think it's 1974, 75. One of the first ones that came out was the uh, Gwyn Arm pistol. I don't know if you're familiar with that gun or not, but it's a, no. it's a 5.56 pistol. It's a, you know, it's about, I would say it's about 24 inches in overall length. 
uh, it was intended and designed to for pilots to have a rifle caliber in the in their cockpit if they were to you know fall behind enemy lines. These guns have been around for a long, long time. I mean, it, it's nothing new. And I think the point that I, that I was trying to make, and if we want to be, if ATF wanted to be intellectually honest, okay, the the argument that they should be making, and again, people don't, you know, come back after me and say, no, you're giving them something to, you know, they should be going after that. But the, if they want to be intellectually honest, what they would say is that, an AR-15 pistol is nothing but an SBR without a stock. So it's like was it, it's like the chicken before the egg, okay? Right. Like what are we talking about here? But that's the problem with the law that they're trying to interpret is that the law isn't about whether the gun is an AR platform, right? It's about whether it's designed and intended to be you, shouldered. You said, and if it doesn't have a stock. You said the word. The word is intended. So if an AR-15 pistol, okay, is intended to be fired with one hand, and a brace that, that I invented so I can tell you the intent is to allow you to fire that with one hand, you know, they're going after the brace. Why aren't they going after the pistol? Well, the, the fact is, is that with this 293-page document, they're trying to go after all of those pistols, okay? And I think ultimately their, their fundamental goal would be to say that all of those guns in some way, shape, or form are short-barreled rifles, and you see that by them giving zero objective standards about um, surface area. So somebody mm. came out with a AR, with an AK pistol, a bullpup AK pistol, which looks very much like the, like the, the Gwyn uh, um, or Bushmaster, I think is the one who took it up, the arm pistol. It's just a compact platform. Does it have surface area in the back? Yeah, of course. I could take a mare's leg 45 uh, long Colt, which is, I think that's considered a pistol too. And I can shoulder that as well. So is that illegal now? I mean, this is the direction they're going. In. We, and, and the problem is, again, they're trying, they're going about trying to solve this problem the wrong way, as usual. It's ATF. I mean, but, you know, they're trying to go after something that, uh, in their eyes, promotes the sale of firearms that they would much rather see, you know, go away. But, yeah, but it does feel a lot like it's just sort of uh, <clears throat> almost spite on the, the side of the ATF agents in charge of determinations because they feel it seems like they feel they got swindled or something. And so, um, you know, nobody should be able to have these things. And it, But it's like so far down the line, there are millions of people have these things. Well, that's the that's that's the rub, man. I mean, here we are, you know, we're we're talking about this stuff. It's a Tuesday. Last this past Tuesday, it was ten years to the day um, that that the brace, you know, the whole thing started. That I was at Shot Show, and um, you know, if it was really that much of a public safety issue, number one, they would have given us loads of different types of crimes that that are being used, whereby braces are on guns that are being concealed. Now, a brace makes a gun bigger; it does not make a gun smaller. So the whole idea of concealability to me is just ridiculous. Um, but then again, like like who's use, who's using these 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 guns to commit all these crimes, and where are they? You know, I mean, I just I don't see it. Is it gang related? It could be, and maybe that you know, obviously we've sold you know more than ten million of these things. So I'm assuming that yeah, some gangs and people with nefarious intent are going to get their hands on them. Okay, just because there's so many out there, right, right. But so, but what does that what does that mean? 
for the purposes of the ATF to get involved and try to ban these things. Whether or not that product is on an AR-15 pistol, AK pistol, TAC-14 shotgun, or whatever it is, does not make that a force multiplier. You know, And I've said this before, and people get really mad at me when I say this, but I'll say it again, because I want to be intellectually honest. Now, I think the whole bump stock issue was ridiculous. The fact that Trump banned these things by diktat is, is evil and disgusting. But what, as a former Marine, what full auto fire does is it gives you a force multiplier effect for bounding movements. So I can take the enemy, get close enough, throw grenades and kill them. Okay. There is no force multiplier to a brace. Like what, what does it do to make that firearm any more lethal than it already was? And again, full auto fire, I don't know that it makes it more lethal. It just gives you when trained, the ability to do certain things as a group. So that's the that's the the intellectual honesty that I'm trying. So what force multiplier does the arm brace have? Other than maybe, I guess, and then here I am, I'm thinking out loud, other than promoting the sale of the types of firearms that the ATF wants to deem more dangerous than others. And many people have yeah. said this to me before, though, Stephen, is that if anything, this whole 10 years of braces has shown that the idea that SBRs should be part of the NFA is false. Um, and it should have been that, like the minute you had an AR-15 pistol, somebody should have said the, SB, the SBR rules in the NFA are ridiculous because they are. I mean, so what's the difference between an S, like a, a, a 10 and a half inch AR-15 pistol and uh, a 10 and a half inch SBR other than the stock being on it? I mean, what's the difference? Yeah, there? I think... I think a lot of it just comes down to the ATF feels as though these devices are being used to uh, skirt the NFA and they don't like that. And they're just kind of putting out a rule to, that effectively bans all of them. So why, uh, so why wouldn't regardless they? Regardless of what they said in previously. Right. But then, so why wouldn't they come back and instead of saying we need to ban those types of guns, they should say the 1934 National Firearms Act is outdated to Congress. We need to work mm -hmm. on it. There's no reason to have short-barreled rifles on there anymore because there are there are all sorts of new technologies that make that SBR title um, just useless. Like the, it has no meaning anymore. Again, I have a FN you know 2000 uh, rifle that's shorter than an SBR. I've got a sure. I've got a Springfield or whatever I forget who made it a shotgun that's 27 inches in overall length that that essentially just it negates the idea of short-barreled shotguns. Like technology right. has advanced. Why isn't the well, there's also, talking about that? There's also a political aspect to all this, of course, because this happened. Well, first of all, you know, uh, the trajectory of the regulations on this from the ATF have followed fairly closely with who was president at the time. Right. Uh, under, there was the 2012 uh, rule, you know, ruling that you got the termination letter on the initial brace mm -hmm. uh, under the Obama administration. But then they were. I think very fairly quickly uh, realized that um, they didn't like the direction things were going. And so they issued all sorts of contradicting opinions and they had the, the determination that if you touch it to your shoulder, you know, that constitutes a on the fly redesign and could be a federal felony. Um, and then when the Trump administration came in, they changed their tune on that uh, reversed the, uh, concept of uh, that touching it to your shoulder constitutes a redesign, 
then they were uh, proposing um, they were sort of put uh, there was an advocacy effort to have them propose uh, sort of objective measures of what makes a brace uh, uh, okay and what makes a braced gun an SBR, uh, right, as, as obviously you remember. And then that got shot down because of the, the, how uh, it was effectively very similar to what got brought up again afterwards um, under the, the Biden administration. And of course, Biden... Uh, President Biden is pushing for a lot of executive action on guns. And so that, that's certainly a, a component of all this. The ATF seems uh, fairly captured politically uh, in in the way that this has gone down as well. Yeah. So you, I, you just I mean, in 15 seconds or less, you explained something that was 10 years in the making. Um, and I was behind all of it. So like, it's interesting. I'm listening to you talk about that. And I'm thinking about all these meetings that I've had with ATF and, you know, um, meetings with, with even president Trump's, you know, second amendment guy and talking to, sure. you know, the, the guys in the department of justice, but 2012, I came up with it. Okay. We went through 2000, all of 2013, all of 2014 and all of 2015 with positive letters. We had, uh, so I got the approval for what was the MPX adjustable brace. So that was a second approval. So I got the approval for the first brace, which was the SB15. And then we wanted to make, obviously, we were making all, all sorts of other braces. Now, all of my braces are made of their rubber products with two flaps and a strap that fit around your forearm. In the beginning, when I was talking to people, and I'll name them out, it was Max Kingery, who was at ETF. He was head of the technology branch at the time. It's called Fat D now, Firearms and technology branch. Back then it was something else, but he was the head of that. I could actually pick up the phone and talk to him. And I, and, and essentially what he told to me on the phone was, hey, if it doesn't deviate from what you had originally sent in, there's no need to continue sending us you know, new approval, new requests. So the SB15, which was, was, was for SIG, and then I made one for Century Arms, are essentially the same product. They look a little bit different aesthetically. What changed was when I wanted to make an adjustable brace. And, you know, the whole purpose of having an adjustable brace, just like an adjustable stock, it's similar. You have people that have a different arm length. You know, I'm six feet tall and my arm is made a certain way. My best friend's six foot five and he's, his configuration is totally different. So I was saying the, the, the brace works in this way. I went to West Virginia to ATF headquarters, sat down with Bill Ryan, who is a general counselor. He's one of the, the general counsel guys for ATF. And I, I, I made my pitch explaining to him what I wanted to do. And they accepted that. So we got an approval for that again. Okay, this was prior to the shouldering thing that came out in uh, January of 2015. You also had, and I'm sorry I want to go through this because it's important for a lot of the people who don't know kind of that 15-second, that 10-year blip that you talked about. But within, within that 10 years, there was also a police officer out of Colorado that – wrote to the ATF saying, hey, you know, a lot of people are using this product inappropriately. They're using it to shoulder. What are we supposed to do as police officers? And at the time, the ATF wrote back and they said, hey, listen, you know, we can't tell people how to fire their firearms. The product was designed and intended to do a certain thing. And it's not the ATF's position to, to, to essentially talk about that. Like, we can't say anything about that. Which was a huge letter. I mean, that, after that letter, I mean, even our sales were, were already crazy at the time. We were selling hundreds of thousands of braces. But after that letter, it was like, oh, you see, the ATF is 
they're being good and they're, 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 you know, letting us do what we want to do. And then something happened. And the one thing that happened was Obama needed to show that he was doing something after, after the Sandy Hook shooting. And, and what he did was he put in B. Todd Jones, who was uh, the, the presidential appointee uh, for the very last year, I guess, of Obama's presidency. And what's the first thing that he did? He had his attorneys at ATF draft a document that we all remember that said, use changes what the product actually is. So if you put it up to your shoulder, you've now redesigned it. And now all of a sudden, Shazam, it's a short-barreled rifle. And if we catch you doing that, it's 10 years in prison and the whole nine yards. And everybody went, I mean, I think you remember, everybody went crazy. Mm -hmm. I worked my butt off for years after that. And uh, years, a few years, I, I lobbied. I went to D.C. I spoke. I was trying to speak to the, the guys. I was trying to speak to B. Todd Jones himself just to say, hey, man, this is crazy. This is unattainable. And then something other, something really crazy happened. And that was the Trump phenomenon. And, you know, we're talking about the ATF here. And this is just imagine a big political flag there. Well, you know, it's it was swing and left, and all of a sudden Trump win, wins, and now the flag is starting to swing right. And guess what? The people at the ATF started saying, "You know what? We better change our tune." And so, bam! They got rid of that 2015 letter. They said that's ridiculous. You can shoulder it occasionally, sporadically, incidentally. I think were the words that they used. And we had Trump. And then the whole craziness of the four years of Trump, but then towards the end of the Trump administration, the people at the ATF showed their true colors again. And I got to tell you, people at ATF, they are not from from our, I say our party, I'm more libertarian, but they're not Republicans. Okay, there are some, but the people that are at the top of the ATF um, are certainly anti-gun. And what they started doing was 1920, they started pushing back. You know, they started saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing this. Oh, it looks like that. Oh, it shouldn't look like that. And then, by, you know, you had Biden that happened. And essentially, I'm saying all of this for what? It is the definition of politicization. Yeah. What is an agency? Like, your job as an agency isn't to do politics. Your job is to be super partis, which is like, you know, Lady Liberty. I I'm there to do public safety efforts not do political public safety efforts and suggest that certain types of guns are more dangerous when they're really not. So anyway, I'm on my soapbox, Stephen. You take over. Yeah, well, <laughs> look, I, I think that the credibility of the ATF has taken a really big hit with these last three rules that they've put out, the bump stock ban, the uh, unfinished firearm frame uh, regulation, and and this pistol brace ban. This, this is something where, especially given that their positions in a lot of these situations are not only that now something is illegal or requires registration or what have you, but that it always did, even when they said otherwise. Uh, these, these are not things that you can take seriously. Uh, it's very detrimental to the reputation of this agency that is a very important agency, frankly. And, and uh, you know, I, I think there is, as you mentioned earlier, a pretty big distinction between your average uh, field ATF agent who wants to go after, you know, actual gangs and criminals, uh, violent criminals, uh, and some of the people in the determination office who are much more caught up in the political uh, side of regulating firearms. Uh, and and it's, it's just extremely transparent to anybody who's watched how this agency 
has operated over the last decade, uh, even if you just focus on the pistol brace situation. But they're the, the I mean, the bump stock ban is almost identical. You know, they initially said those were not machine guns. They're literally just pieces of plastic that are a stock. Uh, and then they turned around and said, after Trump ordered them to, uh, no, these are machine guns and always have been, in fact, so we can take them from you. Uh, now, but this uh, actually rolls in, I think, fairly well to uh, the final thing I want to talk about with you, which is uh, what your plans are for uh, going forward. You know, legal challenges. Obviously, the bump stock ban has now been blocked by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and I think that ruling is going to have a very significant impact on legal challenges to this pistol brace rule. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, where are you at on that? What's going on on the legal front? I mean, there's several different things that are happening. Um, I hate to get into the specifics because I know the ATF watches these things and I know that they want to find a way to understand what some of our, you know, our, our strategy is, but um, you know, I guess the 30,000 foot view is um, there's a lot of things. So uh, frac, is the uh, is a nonprofit organization that that SB Tactical and several other companies work with. Um, a lot more after the show, a lot more people have joined. But that is the vehicle that we will be using to fight the ATF. And what FRAC stands for is the Firearms Regulatory Accountability Coalition. Um, and essentially, what that says is that um, it's a group of of company. It's a nonprofit that represents a group of companies in the industry. It doesn't represent you know, you know, Joe Smith, it represents the companies in the industry. And all that frack really wants to do is to make sure that ATF is held accountable. ATF, DOJ, governmental agencies that regulate our industry are held accountable to um, to essentially do their jobs and not be political about it. Um, and the way to do that is to attack through the APA, which is the American Procedures Act. Um, the way to do that is to lobby through a lot of the connections that we have. But um, essentially what FRAC is doing is uh, it's going to respond. Okay, so we will have a, a response from FRAC, I think, within the next two to three weeks. Everybody's like, oh, you need to respond tomorrow. That's not the way FRAC works. Um, I think we're going to leave that up to uh, groups that do that better than us, which is FPC, GOA, Second Amendment Foundation, um, NAGR, there's a whole bunch of groups out there that represent gun owners. And, right. and, and they, they already have some cases going on this. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember. Well. I don't want to say it wrong, but I know there's a, a group coming out. I believe it's GOA, but if I get that wrong, forgive me, uh, that's going to come out with something probably in the Fifth Circuit. And they're going to piggyback off of what the Fifth Circuit argued, which uh, for people who don't know, in 15 seconds or less, essentially what the Fifth Circuit said was, if a regulation has criminal statutes and it's ambiguous, the rule of lenity applies. If the rule of lenity applies, then that regulation can't be had. It needs to be tossed out. And that's exactly what happened. Essentially, bump stock, you know, they, they came up with this new rule. There's criminal implications and serious ones because it means you're owning a machine gun. Well, you can't just do that. OK, you can't decide a, a, an agency cannot make law. They can regulate, but they can't make law. And if there's criminal right. implications, then it's different. At any rate, yeah, they ruled yeah. they ruled that it went the the ATF went beyond its uh, authority in reclassifying bump stocks as machine guns because it didn't comport with what the 
actual NFA law says a machine gun is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also that they'd been, uh, their, their rulings had been contradictory and vague and confusing. Uh, and therefore the rule of lenity applies. Uh, and so it seems pretty straightforward that those same uh, arguments would apply to the pistol brace rule. It's actually kind of, it goes further to the point of politicization that the ATF one week after this ruling came down, decided to go forward with publishing this rule anyway, I don't, that's given crazy. that it clearly is implicated by what happened in that case. That's but, the crazy part to but, me. Yeah. That's really like, I thought that the, you know, it's funny. We were, uh, we have lots of attorneys, but we were expecting them to come out with it, but we were expecting them to come out with it and say that something along the lines that the fifth circuit is different than what we're doing here. Like that, that's what we were right. expecting. They, Which they didn't. No, they didn't. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of, so just to kind of get back to what we were talking about in terms of strategy, I mean, one of the biggest issues here is just really understanding, and we, we were talking about, you know, the, the ruling itself, and I'm looking off camera because I have this rule in front of me. Just the other day, you know, you want to talk about the, the implications, and we were talking about the numbers that ATA came up with, and we're saying that they're, they're soft on the numbers. Well, they have their impact study. Okay, which talks about, you know, the financial impact. And obviously they're saying that it's more than $100 million. But we picked this one part out. And and forgive me, it's a paragraph. I'm going to read it to you, Stephen. And it's talking about the cost to turn firearms with attached stabilizing braces into ATF. Okay, so what they're suggesting is that some people will have to turn in their some people will decide to turn in their firearms. Some people will try to remove the brace. But again, just removing the brace doesn't doesn't take you out of the whole SBR thing, but essentially there's a glitch that we found. And, um, it's, it's, it's not the glitch that some people were talking about yesterday, which was, Oh, well, if you know, you submit it and within 88 days, they don't, they don't approve it. Then it's an automatic, you know, denial. And if it's a denial, then you're in possession of an unregistered short-piled rifle and the ATF will come out and say, Oh, well, don't worry about that. We're going to use discretion. That's their term. We're going to use discretion. And and while they did talk about discretion for certain things um, in this 293-page ruling, they didn't talk about discretion for this thing. And what they say, and I'm going to quote it, is it says, well, uh, these – so public comments suggest that the loss of the firearm should be included in the analysis ATF concurs um, – that there may be a small number of individuals or FFLs that choose to turn in their whole firearms to ATF. These may include individuals who imported pistols. Okay. That's important. And who may end up losing the value of their firearm. If the firearm is a semi-automatic rifle. Now that might not make a lot of sense. I'm going to explain it. This is due to the restriction of 18 USC 922R. People will think, well, is that 922R compliance? It is which makes it unlawful for any person to assemble from imported parts any semi-automatic rifle, which is identical to any rifle that is prohibited from importation because it's non-sporting. What does that mean? Because there's a lot of legal jumble to know, but I'll boil it down for you. Anybody who owns or imported a pistol who also has its counterpart as a rifle will not have the ability to do any of the five things that ATF told you that you can do. Their only choice will be to destroy the firearm. Think all the B&T guns. Think all the Century Draco pistols. Think all of the MP5 variants. 
None of those firearms can be made 922R compliant because they cannot live as rifles. So the implication is, is that all of those firearms will have to be destroyed. And they're saying it in this document. It's hidden in there. It's hidden in this little blip here that you could probably see I highlighted, but it's there. And to me, that in and of itself is insane. Think about all the people that are going to have, we're talking about, we're not talking about your, you know, some beat up AR-15 that you built in your garage, you know, with some cheap lower. We're talking about $3,000 firearms and all of them have to be destroyed. There is no other way to, to uh, comply with what the ATF is saying. And the ATF said, well, we may use our discretion. Sorry, but bullshit. Unless you write that in this document, that you're actually going to use discretion and you're not going to uphold the law the way it's written in 922R, 18 USC 922R, all of those people who own those types of guns, and I know you have a few of those too, you won't be able to do anything with that other than destroy it. Hmm. So Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that. No. and uh, We found out about this the other night. We were just reading it over, and one of our, our members at FRAC was like, hey, what does this mean? So, yeah. I mean – Because, uh, yeah, because the ATF's line, including uh, Director Dettelbach at the, the NSSF at SHOT Show, is that uh, I think they're, they're expecting that people will just remove the braces uh, because – uh, and their their line is that the braces aren't illegal themselves. You can, I, I guess, have a brace to look at and admire, but you can't. You just can't have it on a gun with a barrel that has less than sixteen inches. Uh, you know, rifle barrel with less, less than sixteen inches. So, um, it, it turns out that it sound, sure sounds like that's not actually the case. It's not, and I'll, and I'll explain it even further. If a firearm is made, okay, from birth. Essentially, what they're saying is a firearm is made from birth. So, a company like, let's just say, Century Arms, the first thing that they put on that firearm was a brace. Okay. They imported it, they put a brace on it. The 293 pages is essentially saying that we were wrong, and retroactively, anything that's ever had a brace on it actually had a stock. We're going to forgive yep. you, but it actually had a stock. Right. If you That's their position that all along. This was really a stock. Correct. Despite what they had said previously. Correct. So if you are an FFL and the first thing you do when you make a receiver is put a stock on it and you put a barrel on it of less than 16 inches, you've made a short barreled rifle. And for most FFLs, it's not a problem because you register it as such and that's the end of it. But now through retroactivity, all of these companies that built these pistols with, and I'm going to use the word stock, even though it's a brace, but I'm going to use the word stock for the purpose of the conversation. All of those firearms were short-barreled rifles, but they were short-barreled rifles who had a counterpart as a rifle and therefore cannot be kept in the United States because they do not meet 922R compliance. Right, which is a, which is a rule about import, uh, importing these sorts of guns. Right, and I think the, the reason that this has happened is obviously because I, – so this document was, was written – far better than the first document. In other words, I think it was DOJ that wrote this document. But I don't think DOJ understands all of the nuance between the 1934 National Firearms Act, the 1968 Gun Control Act, and obviously not 18 USC 922R compliance. Because I guarantee you that if they spelled this out in the first document that came out, the first 
regulation. And they said anybody who owns these types of guns needs to destroy them. And that's their only thing to do. There would have been much more of an uproar. Now, there should be an uproar now because just this in and of itself is millions of firearms. Think about every Zenith yeah. gun that's been imported. Think about every B&T gun that's been imported. Think about all the Century Dracos that have been imported. I mean, millions of people will have to destroy their firearms. Well, yeah, I don't. Uh, this is not something that I think a lot of people have, have noticed yet. I, I hadn't seen it until you told me about it. So it is very significant new wrinkle to all this, I think, because, yeah, the line, the line you're hearing from the ATF is more or less that this isn't that big of a deal. We're not going to, you can register these if you want, you won't have to pay the tax stamp or you can just take the brace off and it'll be fine. Uh, but it turns out that's not, that's not actually true. No, it's not. And the thing is, I believe did, did you, I don't know if you noticed or not. I think it's in the federal register. I know that they said that it was supposed to come out probably on Monday. Um, I think somebody mentioned that they saw that it was posted, but it has it hadn't dropped in the federal register yet. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I think the usual practice is to announce it the business day before, so it should have been published on Tuesday. But I haven't personally seen uh, news of that yet, uh, so I'm not positive. So the problem with this issue that I just brought up, and the question that I had for some of these attorneys is, what's the cure for presenting a regulation? that that has a different effect on you know your general public and i don't think there is a cure for it uh, other than obviously us suing them and pointing this out to a judge and talking about arbitrary and capricious and talking about how uh, they didn't take certain things into account when coming up with their their impact study um but this thing here just this part here that we were talking about internally in, in sp tactical and with some of the attorneys is huge for us because I don't think many people know about it. I think you're the first you're the first person who I've spoken about it, Steve. So this is this is it. This is your big uh, you know your big news story is just this part itself that people will not have the opportunity to use ATF's chart to comply with this new regulation if their firearm was imported. Okay, and they'll have the only choice will be to destroy it. It's crazy or, stuff. Or turn it in, I guess, right? Uh, well, you could turn it into ATF, and they will destroy it. Right. Well, that is uh, that is a very significant uh, new development, I think, and and um, we will most certainly be following the actions that you guys take in court, as well as what the gun rights groups are doing uh, with this regulation. I think this is a much bigger deal than uh, a lot of people understand. Certainly, hasn't gotten a lot of. Uh, media coverage yet. I think there's, there's sort of a, a lack of understanding of what this all is going to mean and the, the big impacts it's going to have uh, from, you know, among a lot of reporters to this point. But but uh, certainly I think it's it's something that a lot of the gun owning community is, is aware of and a lot more people are going to become aware of very soon. Uh, and it's going to become a much bigger issue than it is at this moment, especially given that last wrinkle that you just described there. Steve, I, um, but real quick, I just wanted to mention something. I didn't mean to cut you off, but uh, there's one last thing that I, I haven't mentioned, and it was probably the biggest thing that happened to me at SHOT Show. Um, I may have talked to you about it but you know, or, or mentioned it in passing, but I do want to call them out. And uh, NRA has not been – I know a lot of people have, are upset with NRA. Um, and, you know, obviously they've, they've got a lot of 
stuff that happened in the past few years that I think a lot of people are upset about the way they've spent money, uh, who they people think they represent. I sat down with NRA and I, I want to make it public that NRA has essentially committed to pay for any half of this entire lawsuit that we are working on. Um, I think it says a lot about what they're trying to do. Um, it says a lot about how they're trying to help out the industry. They have not asked me to call them out. In fact, they, they're probably, they're not going to be upset with me, but um, you know, the people that I sat down with are uh, one of the attorneys at, at NRA, which is um, uh, well, it's it, Josh Savani is one of the guys there. And then I sat down with Jason Wiemet, who's the president of, of NRA um, yeah. and the, yeah, the legislative action, legisl yeah, Institute for legislative yeah, action. and no, Institute for legislative action, right. Yes. And they have committed to, to this fight. And I just want to say, like, I know a lot of people are upset with them. I've seen a lot of comments online saying, Oh, what are you guys doing about it? Um, out of all of the groups, uh, the NRA has really kind of put their money where their mouth is. Um, and I just want to say thank you publicly for that. They're every, the, all the groups have been out there. Um, have been helping out FBC, GOA, NAGR, Second Amendment Foundation. There's a lot of other groups that have been helping out, but NRA is the one financially. Um, on a personal level, they'll, they're saving. They're saving SB Tactical. They're saving us, the people that work mm -hmm. for us. You know, all of the guys that have been around for years working for SB Tactical. Because of this, we'll be able to keep them around for much longer, and I think we're going to win this fight. Yes. Well, the NRA remains uh, the largest gun rights group in the, the country. And, uh, you know, despite everything else that's going on, it is important to know what they're doing about this as well. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Uh, we, as we discussed earlier, you know, the other, there are a number of other gun rights groups that are uh, fighting this regulation uh, through legal challenges as well. But, but it is uh, important detail to, to understand what the NRA is doing. And so I, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, but yeah, we will keep, we will keep an eye on all of this. We will continue to follow what's going on. And hopefully we can have you back on the show in the future too, to give us some updates on progress and what's, what's going on with these legal challenges um, and, and how this rule is having a practical impact as well. Once we get a little bit further down the line. Um, so uh, really appreciate you joining the show today, Alex, uh, can you tell people where they can find out more about, you know, uh, your legal efforts or SB tactical so yeah, that's thank you. I appreciate that. So um, for the legal efforts and for where we suggest you go help out, you can go to sb-tactical.com. The organization that we are using and that a lot of people have joined just this past shot show is FRAC, F-R-A-C, and you can go see them at fracaction.org. That's fracaction.org. Great. Well, we appreciate you coming on and, and giving us time. Yeah, this is going to be a longer episode, but I think there's a lot of important uh, details that we've got to discuss in, in here. So uh, I'm just glad that you were able to put aside some time to, to come on the show and discuss it with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, brother. All right. It's time once again to talk with contributing writer Jake Fogelman about the news of the week. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. A little tired. Just got back uh, last night from SHOT Show in Las Vegas, which we'll, we'll get to uh, at the end of this segment. But it was uh, six days. I had to extend a day because uh, CNN wanted me to do some some TV while I was going to be on a cross-country flight. So we had to uh, work that out. I ended up staying, staying an extra day in Las Vegas. So I guess that's uh, the upside to it. And I got to 
to do a couple of the shows, which was which is always a good thing. But um, I'm back now, and we have some some news again in Illinois with the Assault Weapons Ban. There's been a couple of updates. Can you just run us through what you wrote about this week? Yeah, so it's been a little over a week uh, as of this recording since that law has been in effect, and we've seen a, a lot of things happen in the interim. Um, first and foremost, there's been a bevy of lawsuits. Um, you have a couple state lawsuits that were filed almost immediately, and we now officially have our first federal lawsuit, which I wrote a piece on um, from the Illinois State Rifle Association, uh, as well as the Firearms Policy Coalition and Second Amendment Foundation. So three fairly prominent actors in this uh, gun rights space. Yeah, and the Illinois State Rifle Association is an NRA affiliate, so you kind of get um, all all the big players involved there. That's right. Yeah, pretty much everyone except for Gun Owners of America that you would expect to see in a, a federal lawsuit. Um, and I'm sure they're working on something as well. <laughs> yeah, you can almost you can almost guarantee. So you have that going in in you know federal court, which is a big deal, obviously, because it's another uh, vehicle for litigation on assault weapons bans, which is still you know fairly new after the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin. We're still kind of working out the jurisprudence, so that's something to keep an eye on for sure. And outside of the courts, you have law enforcement officials from all across the state. I think we're up to about 80 counties now have come out and say said that they're just not going to enforce this new law. They say they they think it's unconstitutional. And that they will not expend uh, county resources enforcing uh, this law against folks that are just charged with noncompliance of the law. So if you're, you know, committing other crimes, they might use it as a tack on, uh, but they have no intention of just, you know, sticking charges on people that refuse to register their previously lawfully purchased AR-15s. Right. And this is sort of the uh, a new frontier for the Second Amendment sanctuary movement, right? This is uh, local... Officials, local county uh, officials pushing back on uh, a gun control law that they view as unconstitutional. Uh, and frankly, they have a better case than ever before that it probably is, given uh, what the Supreme Court ruled in Bruin and what some of the subsequent rulings in federal court have been, including where you are in Colorado, where you've seen assault weapons bans at the local level. There were some, some city and, and county bans there that had uh, that have been struck down or well, they've been blocked from enforcement by uh, federal district court judges that actually were appointed by uh, President Obama and President Biden. So you sort of uh, are getting a, a preview of what might be to come for this Illinois law, uh, especially given that the Supreme Court itself has granted, vacated and remanded the Maryland assault weapon ban case, which the lower court had upheld the law. Uh, and so now the Supreme Court has vacated that ruling and told them to redo the case under its new standard in Bruin. Doesn't It doesn't necessarily mean that the Supreme Court is going to come down on the side of these laws being unconstitutional, but it's I, I would think it's a fairly good sign that that's the case. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think the writing, as you said, you never know with judges, but the writing is sort of on the wall that this is probably isn't going to fly long term. Um, so you have a, a weird dynamic now where state policymakers have sort of one lashed out at the sheriffs that don't want to enforce this law are kind of dismayed at the all the bevy of lawsuits that are being filed. And are, they're left with, I guess, few options to see it enforced. Right. Because there's not really yeah. much you can do to force the hand of these sheriffs. Right. The governor has obviously come out and publicly attacked them, uh, saying that they're grandstanding and this is, uh, you know, like a, a dereliction of duty and that he's going to try and 
put political pressure on them to change their minds uh, or perhaps try and get them voted out of office. Because these are, again, these are elected positions. Uh, and they, of course, take their own oath of office to uphold the Constitution. And so from their point of view, obviously, they believe this is uh, would go against that oath, uh, whereas the governor thinks otherwise, of course. Uh, but he doesn't really seem to have much in the way of options to push back against these sheriffs. Uh, he can use the state police to try and enforce this law, which he has alluded to, to you know, the fact that he could do that. Uh, of course, state police have very limited resources in reality uh, for policing the entire state's gun owning population uh, without any help from local officials. I think that would be a Herculean task to try and go around and figure out who owns these guns and make sure that they've registered them or throw them in jail otherwise. right? I mean, that's even just the idea of that is uh, very politically charged i would i would imagine if you just go around trying to round up gun owners who don't register their guns that's going to get real unpopular real fast yeah um uh, you know even more so than it already is especially in those these areas with these sheriffs uh but we've actually have a, a an analog for this a historical analog <laughs> we talk a lot about that for <laughs> for uh, the the legal side of of gun fights but uh, we have a, a recent historical analog for this exact situation, right? You read about this a little bit in an analysis piece that you just we just published over at the Reload, right? Right, yeah. Uh, pretty similar to what happened in the aftermath of the 2013 New York Safe Act, <clears throat> which was also a uh, ban on so-called assault weapons and magazines, uh, and it also included a registry requirement for gun owners that previously owned these banned weapons. Um, and you saw sort of a similar dynamic where a lot of upstate sort of rural New York County sheriffs came out in the aftermath of that and said, we don't, you know, we don't plan to enforce this. Uh, many of them said similar things like we think this is unconstitutional. We don't support this type of legislation. And as a and result, what was the result. Yeah. yeah so yeah, as a result, you saw very, very limited compliance with the registration requirement. Um, I think the National Shooting Sports Foundation at the time put out an estimate that there were something like a million weapons that would be covered under this ban at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's only a couple thousand that ended up getting. There were 44,000 was the, the number that got released from a FOIA lawsuit. Right. Um, a few years after the law was in effect. So that's, you know, four, 4%. Right. Or so, which is obviously of, a very, uh, very small amount in a state that has over 20 million people. So, yeah. And the the, the governor was never able to extract any sort of revenge on these sheriffs. Right. Who right. What can you do to comply? Mm -hmm. uh, and most of these most of those guns presumably are still in the hands of the people who bought them initially. But this is actually kind of um, uh, how these confisca confiscation laws work in the United States in the modern era. You, you pass uh, a ban on possession of the gun, whether total ban or a ban for anyone who doesn't register them. And then you kind of just don't bother trying to go around and enforce that. You've seen this a number of times. The SAFE Act is a perfect example of it. There was no mass effort to try and enforce that ban. Uh, out, you know, they, they, the idea is to cut off new sales, which, which it does. Of course, it's much easier to regulate um, the sale of firearms by, you know, legitimate dealers, uh, obviously not, not to speak of illegitimate dealers, uh, who, you know, street dealers, they don't really care about any of these laws, of course. Uh, but 
it's easier to choke off the legal supply at the sales point than it is to try and go around and round up people, you know, the guns from people who already have them, uh, because most are not going to be willing to turn them in. Um, and apparently most are not really willing to register them either, because I think there's a pretty fair uh, expectation that registering them would, at the very least, make it much easier to confiscate them in the future, uh, if not be uh, sort of an, an inevitability. Right. So a lot of people view that as an, an inevitability or uh, an inevitable outcome. Right. Uh, that word is really tripping me up. But a lot to <laughs> a lot of gun owners look at this, right? right. A lot of gun rights act activists look at registration as merely a precursor to eventual confiscation. And there is some reason to think that that's the case. I was uh, going to say, we just had a uh, recent example with the governor of Connecticut, right? Because at the, mm -hmm. around the same time of the SAFE Act, they passed a, a ban on assault weapons and included a registration requirement for grandfathered weapons. And then just, you know, like a month or two ago, he came out and said, you know what, I'd like to revisit that and revoke the grandfathered status. Right. Uh, now his, his party <laughs> isn't going along with him, but the fact that he's even right. willing to say that publicly kind of gives credence to that idea that down the road, this could lead to. Uh, yeah, I, I will say that um, obviously there aren't that many registration laws here in the United States historically. So there aren't a lot of examples you can point to this occurring in the United States. There have been things like, uh, um, you know, New Jersey's magazine ban, for instance, where if you, um, uh, if you had had a magazine that held more than 10 rounds back when the limit was 15, they passed a law to take it down to 10 and then you couldn't own or possess the ones you previously held that's confiscated. that's another example though of a situation where basically there was no enforcement action taken they, they made them illegal and then if you happen to get caught with one then you'll get charges but otherwise uh they're not going around trying to find them right now that's uh, they're just getting at how in practice these things have worked to this point but i will say that in other countries uh, there are recent examples of exactly this phenomenon that, that we're talking about here, where registration did lead to confiscation, which uh, New Zealand is obvious is sort of the most obvious recent example where, you know, they they after a mass shooting there, they decided that all the all these guns that they don't um, that they were targeting for removal would be confiscated through a mandatory buyback system. And they do have a registry there. Uh, of those of who owns guns and what guns they own. So that uh, makes it a much more practical uh, idea. And so you can see why people have long opposed this concept. There's also sort of like a, um, there's not a really a lot of other good reasons to have a registry. Right. right. Um, uh, other than potential confiscation down the line, there, there are a couple perhaps uh, for, taxing purposes would be one but this isn't this isn't that you know this is just registering everybody who has them um but either way uh certainly i think that new york safe act example is going to be a key one to give people an idea of what is likely to happen in this illinois case except that the big difference now is that 2013 there wasn't the bruin ruling uh, in 2023 uh, you have that precedent that's going to make it much more difficult for Illinois to justify this new law in court. So yeah, I think we're, we're going to keep following that. Though, I was going to sure. say, yeah, just keep, stay tuned to the reload because we'll be watching to see how that dynamic plays out. 
Um, but in the meantime, I think we wanted to do a quick update for folks on your experience at SHOT Show. Um, if you wanted to fill in kind of how your week went and some of the highlights of the show, maybe. Yeah, SHOT Show is always a, always a hectic time. There's so much going on. It's honestly almost become too big now from my point of view as a reporter, because you just, there's no chance to cover everything there. You know, obviously for us, you know, we take a different approach. We don't really do gun reviews or things like that. I mean, I like, I'll give, I'll give you guys some of my basic impressions of the guns I shot. I went to range day, uh, which has been more and more fractured as the years have gone on. That used to be, a lot more of the gun companies would go to Range Day. Now they all want to do their own Range Day. So Sig Sauer and Smith & Wesson weren't there. I think Staccato wasn't there at Range Day. They, had their, they all had their own Range Days. So I don't really know what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to go to 15 different Range Days. <laughs> uh, it's getting kind of annoying. But either way, what I did shoot, um, was, there were some pretty cool new guns for sure. Uh, you know, Glock was doing the thing where they take different parts of different guns and put them together in different combinations. So they all kind of, you know, shot like Glocks, which if you like Glocks, <laughs> you you like Glocks. Uh, so you'll probably like the, the new combinations of, uh, you know, whatever, 17th slide on a 19th frame or something. You know, th there was plenty of that stuff going on. There's a lot of red dots are taking over for sure. That's been a trend for a couple of years. Um what I what I'll say about new guns at Shot Show every year is there's oh, there always seems to be a trend. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was ten millimeter. Everybody had ten their own new ten millimeter handguns. Then it was last year thirty super carry, which by the way I feel like has kind of uh, just drifted off. I say wasn't that ether. a flash in the pan right yeah. there? Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean I you know Ian McCollum was very he liked the round. I feel like they keep coming up with these rounds that are. Uh, oh, this is a slightly better version of what's extremely popular. Right. Like here's a 10 millimeter. It's more powerful than a nine millimeter. Uh, and, and yeah, you know, you could, uh, fit more rounds than a, a 45 or so. Yeah, there's various advantages. There's a lot better channels to go to for the intimate details of, of each of these kinds of, of, uh, firearms out there and cal and ammunition. But you know, that they're, they're 30 super carry. It's got the stopping power of a nine millimeter, but it's a little bit smaller. So you can have more rounds in your, your concealed carry gun. Sounds great. But uh, until you think about like, it's not that much of a difference between right. the nine millimeter that everybody already has and uses. Right. And so it's really hard, I think, to break in this year. Um, <clears throat> it was five, seven. So uh, people might know the, what the FN five, seven yep. been around for years as sort of the, Really, the only major example of a 5.7 caliber handgun. It's sort of this miniaturized rifle round uh, that that they put into a handgun. People really like that gun. So now everybody's doing five. This year it was 5.7. Smith Musson had a 5.7. I think Rock Island Armory had a 5. You know, there are a lot of new 5.7s. That was kind of the trend. Um, <clears throat> but to me, what was most interesting were, and, you know, I shot the Lago Alien again. I would love to have one of those. Guns. <laughs> uh, we're going to need to sell a lot more reload memberships though. Cause they, <laughs> they start at like five grand Jeez. a piece, but they, it's a totally different, uh, you know, mechanism for a handgun than what people are used to seeing. You know, you've got this tilting barrel Browning 
system that's used in almost every modern handgun. And the, the Laugo Alien is uses a fixed barrel with, uh, you know, a totally different recoil system, and it makes it shoot really well comparatively. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you can Ian McCollum, Forgotten Weapons, who we had on the show before. I don't have to have him on again. I did see him at Shot Show. Good dude. Very smart. Knows way more about the technical details of firearms than than I do. Um, and did a video on the Lago Alien a while back, so people should check that out on YouTube if they have it, more interest in finding out about it. But uh, Rock Island Armory actually is, was kind of surprising me too because they had um, a new gun called the RIA 5.0, I believe is what it's called. And, and it also has a unique recoil system with a fixed barrel and, um, you know, this sort of proprietary operation. Uh, the barrel square. It was, it was, it was very interesting. And, and you could tell that uh, a real difference in my opinion, when I was shooting now, you know, this is, these are reviews based off of a magazine through a gun. It's not, there will be much more in-depth reviews on YouTube that you guys should check out if you're interested in any of these firearms before you buy one. But that's, uh, that was my, uh, one of my favorite because it all, well, first of all, it reminded me a lot of the alien in the way that it, it has uh, a reduced recoil impulse, like a much smoother, lighter impulse than a traditional nine millimeter uh, design does. Uh, and it only costs $900 instead of 5,000. So uh, it's a big upside yeah. there. Yeah. And I shot, you know, the, a bunch of, bunch of other guns. There was this really cool, I think it was 4570 lever action with a suppressor on it. Uh, at, I think it was Silencer Central um, spoof. They That was really cool. It just made a very, it sounded like a rocket when you're shooting, like a little bottle rocket. Um, it's very, very cool. Uh, I don't, you know, that's like a, for fun kind of gun, a silenced lever action. It's not uh, your typical home defense sort of fi firearm. But And then I shot the Hellcat Pro, which is just a slightly bigger version of the Springfield Hellcat, which I also really liked. Um, and, and, you know, shot some machine guns and, and, uh, had my girlfriend there who was the first time at range day. She got to shoot a bunch of the guns. A lot of fun. I, I, oh, I shot a controversial gun. Uh oh. Um, the, the, uh, the, what did they call it? The We One JR 15. Mm, yeah. That the California governor called a weapon of mass. That was back in the news while you were down there in shot show because of that, because of that mm -hmm. being, they there. changed their branding. I noticed, uh, that was sort of one of the thing, you know, this was kind of a troll gun. I would at least the marketing side of it la yeah. last year, I noticed it at shot show and I was like, this is going to be something that, uh, a lot of gun control advocates are going to get upset about just because of the branding, uh, which was uh, like a skull and crossbones with a pacifier thing. It was like, because it's the idea of it is that it's an AR-15, um, but scaled down to be smaller for kids to be able to handle it. It's, uh, and I should say, it's not an AR-15. It, right. It's just a 22 semi-automatic rifle that's made to look like an AR-15. It shoots fine. It shoots like any other small 22 right. semi-automatic rifle out there. You know, the 1022 or Smith & Wesson has made for years a 22 version of the AR-15 right. that is 22 only. Um, very, you know, similar to that, but it's a little small, more compact. So it's easier to handle for, for kids. The, the idea is, well, 
you know, mom and dad's got, has an AR. And so they want to start training their kid on how to use gun. Here's a gun that looks like mom and dad's gun. It's not mom and dad's gun, but it looks the same. It has an integrated little lock on it, you know, built into it. Um, but yeah, they did change their branding. I did yeah. notice that uh, after all the uproar, they, they went to just a sort of simple, it's the same name. So, uh, you know, they haven't walked totally away from it, but they, yeah, it's now just like a color orange and blue color base. There's no logo or anything. Um, but it, it shot well. It was, they had a suppressor on it. Uh, and actually my girlfriend really liked shooting that. She's 4'11". So I was going to say suppressor 22 uh, is about the smoothest thing yeah, you could ever fire. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a good planker gun or like squirrel gun, right? right? Or, or a good, uh, frankly, it is a good gun to train kids on. Sure. Uh, if they're at the level where they can handle a semi-automatic. Um, you know, obviously you might, you probably would start them with a bolt action. So it's just one shot at a time sort of thing. I mean, you can, this thing comes with a one round magazine. So, you know, you can, you know, work your kid up from only having one, one round to work with to then moving on to the larger magazines later on. So, but, uh, yeah, um, I shot that too. <laughs> that's, so that's sort of the range report. I, uh, there was a little bit of political news. It's a, for, for us, like, we're obviously a politically focused publication. Right. And SHOT Show is a trade show. It's not a super political event. There are political uh, stories that you can get out of it, but it's mainly a trade show. It's where the gun industry comes and shows off their new guns to uh, wholesalers and retailers so that they can make business deals and order whatever guns are going to show up at your gun shop um, in April or whatever. And so most of it is, is that kind of stuff. There's the huge display floor that is just too big to navigate at all. Like it's, it's the entire Sands convention plus the Caesar forum now. And it's 55,000 people, I believe was the number that showed up this year. So it, it's massive and impossible to navigate as a single you know, one person trying to cover the whole thing. But there was some political news in it. I got an interview with Michael Cargill, who is the plaintiff in the bump stock ban case that just uh, won in the Fifth Circuit. So we'll have uh, that published coming up soon. I also went to the ATF forum. There was a sort of town hall forum event that the ATF and FBI put on because they, which they go every year. Right. It's not a new thing. Uh, but what, one thing that was interesting is that S Stephen Dettelbach, the director of the ATF, was there in person and gave a speech and did a brief Q&A, um, which is only interesting because one of the main criticisms of Marvin Richardson, the former acting director, who got passed over for David Shipman and Stephen Dettelbach by President uh, Biden, one of the criticisms about him, there was a whole New York Times sort of hit piece on him, frankly, uh, was that he went to SHOT Show and spoke at SHOT Show, uh, which is supposed, was supposedly, according to the gun control groups, um, indicated that he was too close to the industry. Well, now Biden's pick, Dettelbach, was there speaking at SHOT Show, and he right. said he was going to speak again next year. Right. So the politics of that are interesting. It's sort of, uh, I think, give way to 
what the real reason that Richardson got smeared was, and that was to make way for Stephen Dettelbach, who is a, uh, you know, a failed politician. I mean, he's a U.S. attorney, right? So he has some history of prosecuting gun cases, uh, but he never worked in the ATF like Richardson, who was a career agent. And he ran for Ohio's attorney general as a Democrat and in a very partisan manner. He uh, even called the election rigged when he lost. So uh, in the lead up to his loss and uh, and he embraced all of this, the standard gun control positions. So uh, he was not as bombastic as David Chipman, who was a literal paid uh, spokesperson for gun control groups when he was nominated. But he seemed to have a, the same basic pedigree in terms of this was a political appointment done for political reasons. Uh, however, I will say that during his speech, he does seem to try and take a more diplomatic approach towards the industry. Um, you know, he tried to, a lot of what he was saying is like, I'm here because I want to have a good working relationship with the industry as much as possible. You know, we're not always going to agree, but I want there to be open lines of communication was sort of his main message, uh, that I would take away. They did talk, uh, he did talk about the recent rules that the ATF has put in place. He talked about, uh, you know, he's talking to FFLs federal firearms licensees, people who run gun businesses. Uh, and there's been a lot of concern about revocation of their licenses that has really increased in uh, during the, the uh, Biden administration. That's sort of been a point of emphasis at the ATF is to really revoke anyone's license for even minor uh, paperwork errors or things of that nature. And so the number of revocations has really jumped up a lot in the last two years. So that was something that he talked about and he, and he said um, that he didn't want, uh, he didn't think people should be having their license revoked over minor paperwork mistakes or errors. Uh, so he did sort of take a, um, uh, he sort of gave some ground on that point. Whether that translates into action is obviously an, uh, an entirely different question, but that was the message he was putting forth. Uh, to these dealers. Uh, and he did talk about the new rules, um, specifically the pistol brace rule. He There was a question and answer session where he was asked, and these were on, I didn't get a question in, unfortunately, these were sort of pre-written questions, I guess. Um, but he was asked about, you know, what, actually the first question he got, he didn't seem to understand properly, um, which is somewhat interesting in and of itself because he didn't, he seemed it was a question about pistol braces and what gun dealers are supposed to do with the current inventory they have, given that the ATF is essentially saying that they're all going to become uh, NFA regulated short barrel rifles. And for some reason, he thought this question was about unserialized firearms. <laughs> um, and so he gave an answer that didn't have anything to do with the question. He did later on talk briefly about. Uh, the idea that apparently, uh, according to him, if you just remove the brace from the gun, it's no longer an SBR. It would then revert back to being a pistol. So that was one option that he gave um, for what people could do. This That's something that was talked about in the rule itself. There wasn't really a lot in there that was um, 
that isn't in the rule itself. They didn't give a lot of new information or give much detail. And neither did, frankly, the panel. They had a whole panel of ATF officials. And honestly, none of them gave really much insight. And that was something I could hear people remarking on around me uh, while this was happening. But I was going to ask, how was the reception in the room when he spoke about these new rules? That's I think a lot of people were wondering how that was going to how the ATF was going to be received because they showed up right after these new rules dropped. Yeah. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind about this event is that everyone in attendance are people who work in the industry and have to work with the ATF right. for their livelihood. Like they, Whether they like what the ATF is doing or not, they have to be able to understand what the agency is going to to do, like what, how they're going to proceed with enforcement or else, you know, they could get arrested or be out of business tomorrow. So it was it, it was a professional atmosphere. Um, it was clearly not a happy one. And there were plenty of times where people scoffed at things he was saying or made, you know, comments about how it, what he was saying didn't make any sense or. Um, or how he wasn't really giving any new information to, uh, you know, the people in the crowd, uh, certainly not the information they wanted. You know, this is sort of the situation where, you know, obviously these dealers uh, are, I'm sure some of them are part of the lawsuit, the lawsuits that are going on against this, these rules, whether it's the, the ghost gun rule, the unserialized, you know, homemade gun rule, or the pistol brace rule, which frankly affects way more people, millions and millions of people. Um, but the, you know, they're, they're not, um, it, this wasn't a speech at the NRA where you have a lot of activists who are just there to boo or, or whatever. Um, these, these are people who have to figure out what the ATF is going to try to do to them and their businesses. So, you know, it wasn't, um, they were there to try and understand what, what the, this agency is going to do in terms of enforcement for their businesses. So, well, it wasn't like a raucous thing. There was certainly very obvious that there were the people in the room disapproved of um, what was being said uh, by their body language and some of the comments that they were making, but they weren't shouting out or trying to shout them down or anything like that. Um, and there was polite applause when he finished his uh, Q and a talking about how, you know, he, presented himself as, you know, the, the head of an agency that is that the people in the room have a constitutional right to uh, be in dialogue with and have communication with whether they always agree or not. That was sort of his approach to the situation. So, um, you know, people gave very polite, if muted applause to that point. Um, but yeah, it's pretty obvious that everybody there was very unhappy with the situation. Um, uh, although you know, there may be some hope that he's that Dettelbach, uh, you know, despite my description earlier of him being a, he ran a, a pretty partisan campaign as when he was going for attorney general, but it uh, doesn't necessitate that he works that way as uh, ATF director. Certainly uh, you wouldn't want an ATF director to operate that way as a partisan uh, sort of actor rather than, um, you know, somebody operating in good faith towards the industry that they're regulating. But, um, you know, it remains to be seen exactly how Dettelbach will actually perform. Uh, certainly he, the rules the ATF has put out aren't, 
aren't, aren't going to make it easy for him to um, operate as a, a nonpartisan, like good faith actor. These are very hard to justify and defend rules. Um, they're, they're full of intellectual dishonesty and um, um, inconsistencies uh, from ATF's previous behavior. It's, you know, with the ATF now, the way they operate uh, from the determinations branch, you know, not your average agent necessarily, but the determinations, the sort of political appointees, the policy people, uh, you can't really trust anything they say about what's legal and what's not. Because tomorrow they could turn around and change their minds, if, depending on who's president and what they tell them to do. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up um, the uh, the shot show experience and this segment, which is cutting pretty long, actually. Uh, so I guess we got a longer a longer episode this week. But <clears throat> appreciate you uh, uh, coming on and giving us that Illinois update. We will, of course, keep our eye on that and everything going on with the ATF as well. If you liked this episode, if you enjoy the reporting that we do here at The Reload, uh, would encourage you to go and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. Or if you want to go that extra step to buy a membership where you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces that you will not find anywhere else. Uh, and you'll get this podcast today early and the opportunity to appear on the show like we had last week. We had a great member segment. Um, and uh, otherwise, you can also help us by liking and rating and sharing this this podcast uh, any way that you're able to. Uh, and until uh, next time, we will, we will see you guys later.